CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Thanks for being with us for another edition of the show. Let's get right to our panel because we have a lot to talk about. Greg Bluestein, AJC political reporter, is my Wednesday partner from the AJC. Uh, he's here. Greg, you're sitting in your car outside the state capitol, right? The glamorous life of a capitol reporter. Yeah, it's still qualifying. <laughs> and it's very loud in the capitol, so I'm in my car uh, in a safe distance <laughs> well, from the cold zone. Well, thank you very much for uh, being there. In just a minute, I'm going to come back to you because I want to catch up on some of the news about uh, uh, qualifying uh, at the top of the show today. Uh, Tammy Greer is back with us, political science professor at Clark Atlanta University, Uh, not sitting in her car, but sitting in front of the best bookshelf of anyone, because we, we look at each other on WebEx, as I think most of you know, so we get fortunately get to see each other. And we've said many times, Tammy Greer has the best bookcase uh, background of anyone who ever does the show. Hi, Tammy. Hi, good morning. As I always say, I spent my irresponsible 20s uh, collecting books, so there you go. <laughs> well, thank you very much for being here. And GPB public policy reporter Riley Bunch is back with us again today. Riley, you've been spending a lot of time down at the Capitol. How are you holding up? Oh, Bill, it is good times at the Georgia General Assembly right now. So. <laughs> it's qualifying co- and a week from crossover day. So. Yeah, crossover day is what, next Tuesday? Tuesday, yes, and it's going to be a long one. Make sure our listeners understand why that's always a significant day on the legislative calendar. Well, crossover day is the last day to get a bill through one chamber um, before the end of the session. So if a bill does not pass one chamber, it is essentially dead for the session. So we're going to be there for sometimes 10, 12 hours. Yep. Yep. It's a long it's a long day. Um, Greg, let me (laughs) excuse me. Let me start by uh, first of all. Who's qualifying today that you're looking forward to seeing? Well, among others, David Perdue will be qualifying shortly after the show ends, around right around 10 a.m. in the morning. Um, and others include Mike Collins, who plans to bring his big rig truck right up to the steps of the cold dome to make his point uh, in his race for Congress. And all week we've really been seeing um, hundreds of, of candidates, of course, some of the big names like Stacey Abrams, who qualified yesterday, but also candidates for for local offices. Um, we're seeing a surge of Democratic candidates uh, qualifying. Democrats could be on track to surpass their 2018 numbers uh, in the last midterm election. And we're also, of course, seeing a lot of Republican interest in uh, a lot of primaries, a lot of challenges, a lot of retirements in the state legislature, about three dozen so far. Uh, we should tell people that when you talk about Mike Collins, he's running uh, for the open seat in the 10th Congressional District. He, his dad, uh, was a uh, member of the U.S. House. They, his dad had a trucking company that, and then Mike went out and started. I think it's a, he started his own separate business from his dad's. I think, right, Greg? Yeah, that's what I understand. And, and he has, yeah, I think he has several other businesses as well. But 
um, he is he is using the trucker metaphors to the to the limits. <laughs> this this cycle. Yeah. One of the reasons that race, of course, is of note is that, uh, uh, first of all, there are a lot of people competing since it is an open seat. And it's the it's the seat that Vernon Jones decided to go after uh, when he dropped out of the governor's race, apparently at the urging of Donald Trump, who promised to endorse him for another race. And he went into the 10th district, right? Yeah, Bill, I can't think of a bigger test of Donald Trump's influence um, really around the nation, because, you know, I, I know Trump has endorsed many candidates, including five in Georgia. But this is the race where Vernon Jones was a former Democrat. He was a Democrat about a year ago. Um, he was the CEO of the state's most important Democratic county. And now with Trump's approval, he is trying to run in a mostly rural northeast Georgia district where he doesn't live um, based solely on Trump's approval. So to me, I don't, I don't know of any other uh, greater test of, of Trump's clout in Georgia, or really around the nation, than that race. Uh, Riley, we've had some headlines come out of qualifying already the first two days, Monday and yesterday. And by the way, it, it concludes on Friday. On uh, Monday, Herschel Walker uh, filed his paperwork, plunked down his money to become an official candidate. And um, he told reporters, among other things while he was there, uh He's not going to debate his Republican opponents. He he said, and I'm paraphrasing now, I need to be debating uh, Raphael Warnock because I'm going to be uh, the nominee of the party. No debates, Herschel Walker says, with the three Republicans opposing him, right? Well, I think um, the interesting thing about qualifying and the fun thing about qualifying for us in the press corps is we get kind of a glimpse at what these candidates are going to be like. We're going to kind of get a glimpse at the strategies that they're going to pull. You know, we've heard from all the qualifying candidates. They hit their talking points when they talk to us in questions afterwards. And Herschel Walker, um, I know Greg has seen him probably more than I have, but I have not seen Herschel Walker in person yet. So that was a really interesting time. He took a lot of questions, and he did. He kind of gave insight into his campaign. You know, it's like it's, we talked about with Greg and the, the Trump backing, right? He's not really too concerned about his primary opponents, and he will, you know, wants to debate Raphael Warnock, which will, will be really interesting to watch if that takes place. But it does, qualifying really does kind of give us some insight into their strategy and their personalities to some extent up and down the ballot candidates. Um, Tammy, uh, we know that Herschel Walker has been criticized uh, by some of his Republican opponents and also by Democrats for uh, not being willing to uh, uh, go out and, and uh, talk to reporters and not doing a lot of public appearances. Um, but, you know, the polling shows that he's a guy with 70 plus percent of the Republican vote. So why wouldn't he? run a a low-key campaign undercover that was exactly my point right if if he's already um have such a high rating in the polls um he has the name recognition um he has the endorsement of the former president why would he um go to any type of event where he's looking at any of his primary opponents that it, it it doesn't seem from a strategic standpoint for his campaign um, to matter for him to do that. He should uh, focus, or perhaps his uh, strategy is to focus more on his Democratic opponent um, in the general election rather than going and talking about Republican, conservative specific issues uh, with his op- Republican opponents in the primary. Uh, 
Greg, I could think of, of one reason why that might not be a great strategy. I, mean, I could think of a number of reasons. One, it will continue uh, critics uh, contending that he's hiding something. He doesn't want to run an open campaign. But we know Herschel Walker. You've seen him speak in person. I never have. I, mm-hmm. I imagine, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, that he's a somewhat charismatic guy. I don't know how... Uh, how great he is when he's up there in front of an audience. You'll tell me about that. But but a debate is a different setting, and and to not go in, not to have any kind of if nothing else debate practice by going up against um, uh, any of your Republican opponents. It appears the first time he's going to be in debate is with Raphael Warnock, and Raphael Warnock. Um, he's a a powerful, powerful, uh, can be a pretty powerful debater. Is that a, is there, is there anything to that, that he could use the practice if nothing else? Yeah, look, debates make you better candidates generally, right? Debates sharpen you. I watched David Perdue go from becoming, um, a sort of a a non-factor newbie candidate, uh, who didn't know the ropes in 2013 by the end of 2014, being very comfortable on the debate stage against Michelle Munn back in that Senate race, um, it sharpened him. It made him a, a tougher candidate. It got him ready. It got him on his talking points. We haven't seen that from Herschel Walker. Um, we've barely seen him. As, as Riley says, uh, he's, he hasn't held that many public events. He's done a lot of interviews, but most of them are with friendly interviewers, conservative outlets that, that aren't asking him tough questions. And, and even when he has interviews with some of those outlets, he's still making gaffes. He's still having miscues. He's still giving sort of bizarre, confounding answers that Democrats and his Republican opponents are, are, are pouncing him. Now, you know, as a voter, I'd love to hear him more. As a, as, a, as a reporter, of course, I'd love to hear him do more debates. There's still so many policy questions, so many questions about his history, his past. As a campaign, if I put on a campaign strategy hat, though, yeah, he's, he's at 60, 70, 80 in some of the most recent polls. His <laughs> opponents are at single digits. And my biggest cue to whether or not Herschel Walker or any candidate who's, who's such a big frontrunner is worried about his opponents is whether or not he mentions their name at all, right? And we saw this with Raphael Warnock in the last cycle. He never mentioned his Democratic opponents by name, and, ne- and his campaign never went after them, really, right? Um, and we're seeing the same thing with Herschel Walker. We'll know if Herschel Walker's actually a, a getting concerned about his opponents if his campaign starts lashing out at Latham Sandler or Gary Black. But right now, they are, they are, for the most part, ignoring them completely. You know, I would just follow up on that, Greg, is that I think when we talk about what Herschel Walker's strengths are as a candidate, it is kind of this relatability, you know, his football career. He's kind of this local hometown hero. I know we've talked about that quite a bit. And that kind of persona does a lot better when you're at local county Republican meetings than it does on a stage in front of a television audience, right? So jumping kind of from to from this hometown hero, Republican local kind of guy, stage presence to this, you're going to be a federal politician if you get elected, right? You're going to have this national audience. That would be a, that's a big jump from those kinds of settings to a big debate stage. You know, uh, Riley, uh, Rick Dent was uh, on our show yesterday. Rick, uh, for people who didn't hear the show, is a veteran political consultant, Democratic consultant, worked for Governor Zell Miller as his uh, press secretary. He's been around for a really long time. And, uh, Riley, he said yesterday if he were Raphael Warnock, he would jump on what Herc Walker said 
uh, and and immediately call for Walker to meet him in debates at locations around the state, as many as possible. I thought that was an interesting idea. I suspect neither of them are going to do that, however. Well, absolutely. You know, Senator Reverend Raphael Warnock talks for a living, right? That's what he's done his entire life. So if he will take any opportunity to talk to Herschel Walker, I am sure of it. Okay. Um, Tammy, one of the other things that happened on, uh, 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 during qualifying that I thought was interesting, and I want to get you into this, and I'll ask Greg to follow up, is that it gave uh, uh, Brian Kemp a chance to renew his insistence that David Perdue begin accepting uh, gubernatorial primary debates. Kemp has already said he would have four debates, I think, uh, Purdue's camp has not responded at all. And, and here's why I ask you that, Tammy. One of the things about Purdue, uh, and that many people think hurt him in his campaign to be reelected to the United States Senate, is there, too, he played, he maintained a low profile. He did not do a lot of public appearances. He did not want to debate. And I wonder if he's uh, going to find himself in the same unfortunate position if he doesn't uh, change that strategy uh, this time around. I think one could argue um, last time he rode the wave of incumbency for as long as he could. And so, again, why should I, you know, participate in so many when I have incumbency, when uh, I was voted in um, as a Republican and doing well under um, this Republican former president and such? Um, and, and the understanding at the time of at the campaign that perhaps Georgia will remain, quote unquote, red um, so that I don't really need to participate. Perhaps this time around, it could be different depending on um, the, uh, the 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 strength of the camp campaign um, and uh, how close they are in any polls that are taken and what respondents are saying. Um, and, and that may be his his um, his way of getting into the de- on the debate stage with Brian Kemp and to really um, have both of them to discuss policy matters rather than just talking across and at each other. Shameless plug in, in my book, Flipped Out, March 22nd, I go into great detail about <laughs> Purdue's debate strategy. But look, he had great respect for Michelle Nunn, his Democratic opponent in 2014. Um, they, they came from the same hometown that both had fathers who were very involved in their community. He always felt like if Michelle and one none had won, he wouldn't have supported her policies, but would have felt like Georgia's Senate seat was in good hands. He did not have that same respect for John Ossoff. And you could tell in, in some of the, uh, the pre-runoff debates that he did. There was one where John Ossoff got so under his skin that he just seemed angry most of the time. One of his staffers told me he looked like you know, Chernobyl <laughs> the entire debate. Huh. Uh, there was another debate where John Ossoff rattled off this really long monologue. It got 13 or 14 million views within days. Um, and it went uninterrupted. And, you know, even though Purdue didn't have a bad debate otherwise, that became the narrative. Um, so, you know, David Purdue's on edge. He, um, he knows Governor Kemp is a skilled debater as well. Governor Kemp has plenty of experience on the campaign trail and the debates. And the unique thing about this is that usually it's the incumbent who doesn't want to debate that often, right? Usually the per- – and he's – by the way, not only is Governor Kemp an incumbent, he's also way ahead in most of the recent polls. So Governor Kemp is in solid position. It doesn't necessarily behoove him to agree to four debates, yet he is. David Perdue will debate. 
um, he, he issued his campaign issued a statement saying that they basically saying that they plan to participate in a debate. We're not sure how many. I'm guessing the Atlanta Press Club debate will be one of them. Um, whether or not he does um, the other three debates that uh, Governor Kemp outlined remains to be seen. I doubt he'll do all four, but there'll be at least one debate. Um, and it will be a major moment in this campaign because we'll be able to see them both on the stage and we'll be able to hear Governor Kemp try to rebut uh, what David Perdue's been pushing and promoting about the 2020 elections, about his claims that Brian Kemp didn't do enough to help Donald Trump's false claims of election fraud. Um, thank you for reminding me about those performances by Purdue in the debates. I frankly had uh, that has gone out of my, my my head completely. So it will be interesting to see him uh, come back on the debate stage uh, as he and Kemp move forward. Uh, Riley, one last thing on uh, on uh, qualifying before we move on to other subjects. Uh, Stacey Abrams has now officially entered the race, signed the paperwork, paid her fee to become a candidate for governor, and she emphasized the issues that she had pretty great success with. I mean, she lost to Brian Kemp, but came closer to him than anyone expected a Democrat in 2018 uh, uh, would be able to. Uh, Medicaid, expand and a full expansion of Medicaid, uh, voting rights for all, and uh, and uh, more uh, uh, focus on and money for education, right? Yeah, and I think it's first, you know, for context, let's paint a picture of what it looked like at the Capitol yesterday when she came because it was a madhouse. So I shoot still photography <laughs> as well, and I was trapped in about dozens of people surrounding her while she's filling out her qualifying paperwork. There's dozens of cameras, everyone shooting photos. It was insane. And then the, the, when she took questions <laughs> afterwards, it was about 10 people deep in a circle all around her. So if that's any, any indication of what the race coverage is going to be like from the media and also from just people that want to see her, it was insane. But, you know, when, when she took questions after she did uh, stick to her main campaign points. And I think it's interesting that this was kind of her first time to talk about these. She had one um, campaign stop a, a month or so ago, and it was more labor union based. And that was her first thing on the campaign trail. But she really outlined what she, you know, what her campaign is going to look like and the points she's going to focus on from in Governor Kemp's term as well. Medicaid expansion is something she can easily point to in terms of the pandemic, right? So that's going to be a huge platform for her. But just the the craziness that was at the Capitol, it's just it's just set the tone for what that race is going to look like. Greg, it was a close contest last time between Kemp and Stacey Abrams. Uh, it 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 uh, she lost by what fifty thousand votes uh, somewhere in that neighborhood. Um, and and so you know, the Democrats feel that she comes in positioned well to advance on that total and and that she has a good chance of beating Kemp, which, of course, she does. At the same time, Kemp does have incumbency on his side, and that makes a difference. It's no longer two uh, outsiders running for the office. Yeah, but that's if Kemp wins the nomination. But yes, um, Oh, he, well, he that's powers. right. I, thank you, Fed. You know, I've already decided he's the nominee, which is absurd because uh, Purdue could very easily win this thing. <laughs> but look, you know, no matter what, you know, if Kemp wins or if Purdue wins, uh, you know, they have the lev- Republicans have the levers of power 
under the, under the gold dome, right? And Kemp is using those levers of power. We've talked about it in the show before, how he's kind of exercising his, his raw executive authority uh, to, to promote himself against David Perdue and against Stacey Abrams. And I expect the governor to kind of go for a twofold message, attacking both Perdue and Abrams. Um, but, you know, Stacey Abrams, as Riley said, it was, it was like they brought the Capitol to a standstill. Um, there was a gauntlet that she kind of walked through. I, I tweeted a video of it that got, that kind of went viral of just the scene of her going up the elevator and towards the qualifying room. Um, we did not see this four years ago. I'll put it that way. I was there four years ago. Yeah. There was a crowd, <laughs> but it was nothing like this. But her message was, was a lot like it was four years ago as well. She's talking about the same issues she did. She talked about expanding Medicaid. She talked about boosting healthcare funding and improving access to quality education. Uh, but the Medicaid was really the standout. No fewer than six times did she talk about expanding Medicaid, expanding Medicaid, expanding Medicaid. This is an issue that Jason Carter talked about in 2014, that Abrams talked about it in 2018, and it continues to be the mainstay of the Democratic message in Georgia. And there's probably a reason. I'm sure her polls, I'm sure, uh, I'm sure all the research that her campaign has done uh, among Georgia voters shows that that is continuing to be a resonant factor. Um, okay, so Tammy, I really wasn't uh, implying that it's certain that Brian Kemp will be the nominee. I was just thinking about a potential matchup between the two of them again. At the same time, let's talk about uh, on the other side of this, uh, David Perdue. His entire argument for why he should be the nominee comes down to, I'm the one who can beat Stacey Abrams, Brian Kemp can't. Tammy? Yeah, and that's very interesting, being that um, Purdue uh, did not win against Ossoff, you know, in the last um, last election. Um, and I, I, I wanted to point out, too, that, you know, focusing on expanding Medicaid in the state uh, helps Abrams with all the demographics within the state, particularly in rural uh, Georgia, where you had hospitals closing um, where you had um, in certain urban areas, in some suburban areas, where you had having trouble um, with not only just regular overall general health, um, with dental and with vision, with the gamut that is healthcare. So for her to focus on that and really to bring it home, while Carter talked about it, while Abrams talked about it last cycle, what wasn't the, the greatest variable to um, bring to the point of much-needed health care was the pandemic. And because that variable um, occurred in between election cycles, it makes sense for people to then uh, connect with how the lack of health care or the accessibility to health care has an impact on our lives every day. Okay, um, Tammy, thank you for that. We give you the last word on this segment of Political Rewind. Uh, We'll follow qualifying uh, today with David Perdue. We'll be interested in what Riley Bunch and uh, Greg Bluestein have to say about that after he qualifies. Um, But let's take a break now when we come back, turn to other subjects on today's edition of Political Rewind. Clark Atlantis, uh, Professor Tammy Greer, Riley Bunch, GPB News, and Greg Bluestein, AJC reporter and uh, NBC uh, political analyst, join me today. Um, Riley, uh, uh, inflation had already uh, caused this, the price of gasoline to spike. Now 
with uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, it's gone even higher, and it's going to get worse, uh, as President Biden himself acknowledged when he announced yesterday that we were no longer going to buy uh, Russian oil or uh, natural gas. Um, So we're above $4.17 a gallon. I think I paid almost $5 a gallon for regular uh, unleaded yesterday when I had to fill up my car. And I cannot tell you how happy I am. I just bought a hybrid in January. (laughs) Um, (laughs) The question becomes, Brian Kemp wants to, has now said, we're going to suspend the 29 plus uh, cent state gasoline tax. He wants to move forward with that. Uh, Raphael Warnock has said the same thing about the federal gas tax. He's trying to move that forward. The question becomes, do the, are voters going to hold someone like uh, President Biden, uh, Democrats in general, responsible for this? Or are we kind of on the same page in understanding that this invasion has changed things dramatically and we've got to take more dramatic steps to deal with uh, Russia? Well, you know, I think that it's a campaign issue that Republicans can capitalize on, right? You know, with Democrats in office, with Biden in office, with Biden saying that gas price, to expect gas prices to go up even further, I think it would be silly for Republicans not to capitalize and kind of um, energize their voter base with, you know, claims that this is the Democrats' fault, right? You know, and and we're also seeing kind of on the flip side of things um, with Senator Warnock and his um his efforts to, with the federal gas tax, we're seeing him take targets too. He's saying this is the oil companies. They need to be held accountable for things like that. And just for some context, I pulled some numbers um, from the, our economic development department. And so in 2021, imports from Russia were 234 million, and that was in mostly oil and plywood. So this is going to have a big impact in Georgia, not only in gas prices and things like that, but I would keep an eye on the agriculture industry, you know, um, industrial things like that. So these are these are things and impacts that Georgians can feel in their everyday lives that they're going to have questions and they're going to want to know who's responsible. And I think it would be silly for both sides not to kind of jump on that in times of campaign mode. Uh, Greg, uh, Governor Kemp, when he said he was going to work to cut, uh, suspend the the, uh, state gas tax, did blame it on Washington. And I assume Democrats in Washington. I think the tweet didn't say Democrats specifically, but he said, since they're not dealing with it in Washington, I've got to take action here. Yeah, and he's been attacking Joe Biden over his handling of of the conflict of the war in in Ukraine. Um, We've seen Metro Atlanta gas prices reach reach an all-time high. Uh, according to GasBuddy, which is a fuel tracking website, um, it's certainly an issue. Um, already, maybe Democratic, Democrats' biggest challenge um, so far has been inflation, has been scarcity of household goods, has been those logistical problems and supply chain issues that are still stemming from, uh, in part, from the coronavirus pandemic and, and backlogs in that. So there have been a number of issues that Democrats are still wrestling with. And Republicans see that opening, right? Republicans see that... Um, see that they can blame Democrats for these gas prices. And in reality, yes, Democrats, yes, federal policies do affect this, obviously, because Joe Biden's decision to cut off Russian oil will raise gas, will lead to higher gas prices. But as we've seen in previous cycles, uh, the White House and the federal administration does not have that much impact over, over exact how, exactly how gas prices play out. 
Um, and we've seen campaigns like Newt Gingrich's campaign based almost entirely on gas prices. Um, so it's an issue, and it's going to be very challenging for Democrats. And I've, I've been asking many of the Democrats as they qualified, what will you be doing about inflation? What will you be doing to, to stem these, these rising prices? And you know, I've heard a number of issues, but many of them go back to what Senator Warnock's plan was, which is at least pass a federal gas tax holiday that will cut um, 20 or so cents per each gallon. And this is something that Senator Warnock anticipated. He was out um, at a gas station in Sandy Springs on February 22nd touting this plan. Um, and at the time, Republican groups were calling it sort of too little, too late, saying that he was trying to politicize the moment. And now we're seeing bipartisan leaders jump on this issue. Tammy? So this is um, an interesting example of the interdependency of all that we do. So it's not one thing or another in how one item, um, the pandemic uh, affecting supply chain, how uh, Russia's um, uh, invasion of Ukraine is affecting agriculture, as Riley said, as well as gas prices, there's an interdependency. And one person or one political party is, is not going to be the, the, the correction um, to, to all of this. There has to be um, an opening here where there should be bipartisan um, policy. Um, there should be bipartisan solutions because everyone, regardless of political affiliation, um, are, are feeling you know, these impacts. So I, as a political scientist, I would like to see people actually work together um, on policy rather than pointing fingers because that would um, actually move us forward rather than people you know, feeling stuck in making decisions on can I buy these groceries or fill up my gas tank? Everyone feels this. So can we all, you know, to, to be Pollyannish, uh, get along? <laughs> uh, I do think it's worth pointing out that uh, obviously, Riley, inflation was moving forward anyway, and so now the, the, the Russian invasion makes things even worse in many ways. Um, but, but being commander-in-chief does, in fact, uh, put Biden in a different position. Three of the major national polls actually show yeah. that Biden has picked up in his approval rating since the beginning of the invasion. I don't have them in front of me, but, I mean, anywhere from a four-point increase to a seven- or eight-point increase. Now, he's still underwater, I mean, and he still has serious problems with that. Uh, but it is worth pointing out that— um, that it, it, it's not all bad in terms of the economic news for Biden. On the other side of it, being a leader uh, can be a benefit to him right now. Riley? You know, I would say that after the situation with Afghanistan, right, you know, Biden was under heavy criticism for his foreign relations um, and, and things like that. Even Kamala Harris, when we were talking about the immigration issues, you know, they have had um, some some big problems um, in terms of international affairs, right? And so this crisis, how he handles this crisis, I think will set another tone going forward. And it does open up, you know, a, an opportunity for him to raise his approval ratings. On, on the other side of that and kind of the Georgia side of that, it also offers another opportunity for kind of state leaders to step up and for and address this. And that's what we've seen from Kemp and kind of his state tax um gas tax uh, proposals. Greg? Yeah, what I'm really interested in, too, is, you know, usually elections in general, 
especially state elections, don't really hinge on international issues, right? Um, they're about they're about local issues. They're about you know, so far it's been about Medicaid, guns, education policy. You know what's happening under the Gold Dome, and this war in Eastern Europe, this war in Ukraine is going to force is already forcing eyes to look overseas in a way that we haven't seen, right? Um, even even beyond the war on terror and other and other um, you know other huge uh, national moments, we just haven't seen this in recent elections. Maybe not since 9/11. This sort of focus on international policy because um, this this could very much realign the way we think about foreign policy. We're already seeing a, a sort of a non-aggression pact between Ukraine, sorry, between Russia and China, um, and we've seen a strengthening of, of, of transatlantic alliances and NATO and, and really of the West, and it's going to have impacts. It's going to impact not just gas prices, it's going to impact uh, inflation, it's going to impact our economy, um, and it's going to become an issue in federal elections um, beyond Georgia. So I'm really interested to see how Governor Kemp, Stacey Abrams, David Perdue, um, react to this and, and to react what's also coming and how they try to uh, frame this as a state issue because it, it, there's a lot of uncertainty out there. And Stacey Abrams kind of spoke to it yesterday. She said a lot of people were concerned. They're nervous. They're worried. And they have a right to do so. Which also, um, again, to, to go to who we elect to go into these federal offices, right? So even though when we look at um, the Russia situation, when we look at inflation overall, when we look at the federal uh, gas tax, all of these matters um, go to Congress. And so it matters who we vote in the state of Georgia, not only for a state and local level, it also matters who we put into office uh, at the federal level to help um, provide solutions to some of these issues. All right. Um, we'll obviously be watching uh, how uh, all of this develops in the days and weeks ahead. Um, Let's move on to the legislature for a few minutes. And I'd like to start, Riley, with a, a, a measure that has been under the radar until you brought it to light in a story that you published on uh, our, our website, GPB uh, News, the GPB News website. Um, there is a measure that, that has now been introduced in uh, the Senate uh, that would— it, that essentially comes from Cardin Summers, who's a Cordial Republican. It's focused mainly on the city of Atlanta. And basically what Senator Summers is saying in his bill is that cities that have above average numbers of homeless people uh, in their borders should pay some sort of financial penalty in terms of the funding they get uh, because they can't reduce, they haven't reduced their homelessness. And he also says in the bill <clears throat> that cities should uh, be forbidden from using federal funds for building f uh, facilities to house the homeless. What is this all about? Well, we always talk about in the beginning of session that we're, we know most of kind of the hot button issues that are going to come up, but things pop up over time. And I think this is one of those bills that no one was really looking for, right? It popped up in a Senate committee last week, and it's um, dubbed the Reducing Homelessness Act of 2022. And it's being pushed by a Texas-based conservative um, policy organization. You know, those are the people testifying for um, Summers. 
But this bill basically bans cities from using American Rescue Plan dollars to build permanent housing because proponents argue that the permanent housing isn't the best solution to move people out of homelessness and move them off quickly. It also, um, after 2023, if a city has higher than average homeless population than the state average, it basically bans them from receiving any funds from the Department of Community Affairs, state grants, and nonprofits within their borders not getting state grants to help with the issue. And then another thing, there's lots in this bill, and then another thing is that it essentially criminalizes sleeping in public. It it makes it a misdemeanor after a warning. So there is a lot going on with this bill, and critics say it's extremely harmful. It prevents nonprofits and cities from doing the work that they need to do to get people off the street, and it also um, is harmful to move uh, people experiencing homelessness into jail if if they're thrown in jail for sleeping on the streets. And during the first meeting, this was very targeted at the city of Atlanta. Summers said, you know, you drive a two-block radius from the Capitol and homelessness is, quote, out of control, right? So I think this is also one of those bills that we're seeing this session that is Republican lawmakers from outside of the city coming into Atlanta and kind of pushing this policy decisions in Atlanta. It's like Atlanta's the boogeyman yet again, and that's kind of the, the whole controversy around this bill. Um, one quick thing before I ask of the rest of the panel, Riley, it, it, there are a lot of bills that are introduced every session that go absolutely nowhere. Does, does this bill have traction? Oh, my gosh, Bill. So here is a story for you. So <laughs> this, this bill was in the Senate Government Oversight Committee at 5 p.m. yesterday. Democrats had the majority of members there, and they voted successfully to table the bill. The chairman pauses the meeting, calls in his Republican members of the board. All the people who were going to testify against this bill left. Republicans called the meeting back on, and they voted successfully to untable it and move it forward. So if anyone says the legislature is boring to watch, I will point them directly to that because it was insane, (laughs) and it moved forward after being successfully tabled. So, I mean, it's out of Senate committee now, and it has two rules. Greg, what, what do you make of a measure like this? Yeah, I mean, some of these measures obviously are, are meant to energize the base so that they can, folks in conservative districts who might be facing primaries can go home and say they wanted to attack Atlanta homelessness. And, and Atlanta's become, as O'Reilly said, the big, the big punching bag um, between Buckhead City, between um, uh, you know, uh, new, new efforts to crack down on, on gang-related and violent crimes, and now this. Um, Atlanta has become an easy target for a lot of Republican lawmakers right now. Whether or not this has juice to actually um, get to the Governor Kemp's desk, I'm not so sure yet. Um, the sponsor, Senator Summers, also came out with something known as the Don't Say Gay measure um, that is now yeah. a big debate in Florida. He dropped, he introduced that bill today. Um, I've already gotten texts from, from legislative leaders saying it's not going to go anywhere. Um, that doesn't mean we won't write about it, and that doesn't mean it's it's – it means it's just as important to write about these issues, too, because you never know under the Gold Dome. You never know if parts of that pe- that legislation could end up in other measures, um, even after crossover day, the big deadline that Riley talked about earlier. Just because a bill doesn't make it past that deadline doesn't mean it doesn't pass. So very important issues to watch, but also important messaging. You know, even if it doesn't pass, we might hear Republican state senators and Republicans in the House even talk about that measure on the campaign trail as something they tried to do or something they voted for without necessarily saying it didn't become law. 
Um, yeah, Tammy, weigh in on all that. But it is interesting to hear what Greg just said about don't say gay here now in Georgia. It's been the hottest issue in the Florida legislative session. And, and now it comes to our uh, front door as well. Tammy? Right. Um, so I, one could look at the, the homelessness uh, situation um, that proposed a bill in to say, uh, well, you're criminalizing the poor. And then you're making it challenging to help those that are experiencing homelessness to have um, housing. Um, we have zoning that happens in several places that um, zone out having permanent housing or transitional housing for those experiencing homelessness. You also have um, here in Metro Atlanta, it was reported earlier this week that the average price of a home is $435,000 in Metro Atlanta. So if you take all of these items into consideration, uh, one could think that there is a, a, a quote-unquote war on the poor um, with these types of measures. Um, and then when it comes to the don't say gay, um, I'm really trying to, I'm, I understand that it is a, an election year. And so we throw out these items that um, create um, fear um, and, scare, and, and scare folk into coming out to vote, particularly um, those that support those particular issues. Again, how does that help us to move along? Um, just as the bill about you know, uh, parents' rights, um, you know, you have all, most of these things are already solidified. So why are we talking about it as if they don't currently exist? Um, what we're doing is really not helping all of us uh, as, as, as a citizenry um, in order to move forward. Um, before we uh, take a break, Greg, one last thing about these measures is, um, as uh, uh, Riley already told us, the homeless measure comes out of a Texas right-wing organization. Don't say gay is uh, coming from, you know, uh, uh, conservative organizations that promote these issues around the country. Uh, and, uh, Greg, I guess there are Democratic equivalents of this sort of thing. But they seem to be far more prominent among Republicans. We see all the time national organizations that uh, set agendas for state legislatures. Yeah, there are definitely Democratic <clears throat> versions of this, but Democrats don't have the power in Georgia, so we don't really talk right, about exactly. it. Exactly. Uh, they don't get traction. Exactly. But one more for that list is uh, legislation that passed the Senate basically trying to restrict so social media giants from mm -hmm. um, from infringing on free speech rights of conservatives. Um, and and it, legislation like this has passed in other states, including Florida, and it's been blocked by the courts. So we're seeing a full-on import <laughs> move uh, from, conservative other, from other conservative states to push this sort of legislation that, of course, is geared right for election year to energize Republican voters. All right. We got to get to our final break of the show. Greg Bluestein sitting in his car. He's already put... His capital ID badge, he's roped it around his neck. He's getting set to jump out of his car <laughs> and run into the Capitol and cover David Perdue qualifying. Greg, I'm going to let you go a little early, but we really appreciate your being with us as always. Talk to you soon. Why don't we all take a break? And uh, Riley Bunch and Tammy Greer and I will be back in just a minute. Riley Bunch and Tammy Greer continue with me now on Political Rewind. By the way, it's Wednesday. That means it's a Political Rewind newsletter day. If you're not a subscriber, we'd love to have you 
on board. Um, if you subscribe today, and I don't, I'm not sure how it works. I don't think you're going to get today's newsletter, um, but you'll certainly start getting it next week. Just go to gpb.org slash newsletters. Um, I try to do a roundup of what I think are uh, the most important, but also some of the most interesting uh, stories in the news. Uh, and, um, and so I hope you'll give us a try, gpb.org slash newsletters. Um, Riley, let's continue because with this, uh, these bills that you've been looking at, which haven't gotten a lot of attention so far, um, and there's one that uh, uh, really kind of fits into the larger uh, theme this session of legislators who want to get involved in controlling much more deeply what goes on in schools across the state. And you published a story this week about a, a, a bill that's now gotten, uh, I think, come out of committee that puts pressure, as you say in your lead, on local school boards to adhere to the open meetings laws and create barriers to removing disruptive parents from meetings. So with all of these school board meetings where people have gotten up and yelled about masks, where they've yelled about uh, teaching race in the classroom, uh, this bill would make it more difficult, is that right, for school boards to take action to calm things down, get people out of the room if they're being disruptive? Yeah, so basically this bill um, is on the same vein of all kind of the education bills we are seeing this session. It just hasn't gotten as much publicity as it was in Senate committee um, yesterday. And uh, Senator Butch Miller pro tem is the lead sponsor. And let's just remind he's also running for lieutenant governor um, in the upcoming race. But he dubbed this bill as basically an effort to prevent parents from being um, retaliated against for their political views. Um, he said that it's on the basis of parents who have been thrown out of local school board meetings and barred from coming back. But the bill actually doesn't do that much. It basically reiterates the open records laws that school boards have to apply or have to um, kind of live up to, right? And, and But it does create a pathway for litigation for parents that feel like they have been unjustly thrown out, unjustly barred. Um, and, and that is just exactly on the same vein as the education bills. And right now when education policy is at the center of culture wars and we have seen such hostility during local school board meetings, you know, there are a lot of critics that saying this puts local school boards in a bad position. Um, all right. We'll watch how that bill uh, moves forward if it if it does get onto the uh, rules calendar uh, before crossover day. We'll see. Tammy, I want to turn to one last story and ask you to start it. A uh, hundred years ago, efforts to make lynching a federal crime uh, started bubbling up in Congress. It's been a hundred years since that started. And finally, the United States Senate has voted to make lynching a federal crime. Um, it, it, it's a, it's, it's a kind of astonishing that it took so long to get to this point. Um, but I, I thought I'd uh, just quickly point out that um, according to uh, the records I'm looking at, uh, Georgia, in, during a period of like 1882 to as recently as I think the 1960s, recorded something like 458 lynchings. Second only to Mississippi, which had uh, 538 of them. So uh, this state obviously has a long 
and uh, really dark history of lynchings. What do you think about the fact that the Senate has finally done this? Well, I say um, kudos to the federal government for taking the stand. Um, this is uh, a way of coming to grips with the creation of the United States and uh, foundationally how, um, um, you know, racism, how power has um, and its uh, sub- subjugation, oppression has created um, an underclass. Um, this is helping to tell true history, full history, holistic history. Um, one could argue that this is um, the type of history and measures that some do not want to be taught in classrooms, um, yet it is true. And um, in order for us to move forward, we must be honest and truthful about these measures, um, and including in that um, the bill um, that has gone through Congress and will be signed by the, the president um, it also includes sexual assault. So it's not just, you know, a racism component. It is also a sexual assault component, which, again, lends itself toward people who have been in powerful positions, who have um, impressed upon violence upon those that are not in positions of power, um, can now be held appropriately uh, accountable for their actions. And I just want to say, you know, this is a great moment. Um, it is a little bit late, a lot late, yet it's still here. And I hope that we can move forward um, with Georgia and Mississippi and other states, not just southern states, who have um, history with this type of um, violent criminal activity. Uh, I, I should have pointed out that this bill carries the name of Emmett Till. Uh, uh, it, 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 just uh, in, as we get to the end of the show, Riley, let's point out to people, uh, when we think of lynching, sometimes, unf- sadly, we think of those horrendous images of people uh, being hanged. In fact, lynching is murder by a mob with new, no due process or rule of law. So it applies to far more than just that horrific image we think of when someone is hanged. So to that extent, uh, we could say that Ahmad Arbery, Riley, was lynched. Well, I was actually just going to say that, you know, I think that this also carries a lot of weight for current events in Georgia, right? That the case that we saw with Ahmaud Arbery, even the federal hate crimes trial, how that played out. So as, as Tammy said, you know, a, a little, a, it's a great move. It comes a, a, a long time coming. And also, I think it carries a lot of weight, right, uh, both nationally right now and here in Georgia. All right. Thank you for this conversation, both Riley Bunch and you, Tammy Greer. We're completely out of time uh, for today's show. Riley, we look forward to your continued reporting at down at the legislature, among the many other public policy issues you report on for us. And Tammy Greer, we always like having you on Political Rewind. Thank you for being here uh, today as well. Uh, my thanks to Natalie Mendenhall, Sam Burmistawes, and Jesse Neiswanger for their help every single day on getting the show on the air and making it what we hope is a good program for you to be listening to. That's it. We're back again with a brand new show tomorrow. I'm Bill Nygut. In the meantime, please take care. Stay healthy. See you tomorrow.